Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's already a busy one. Yeah, I know. Busy Such one. a busy weekend. This is actually something, this top headline today, that people in D.C. were talking about. On Friday, That's there was right. speculation in Gary Cohn, other top former economic advisors in, in Washington about what was going to happen with First Republic. And now we know breaking about 3.30 a.m., so we're glad you're with us. We'll let you know. Let's get started with five things to know for this Monday, May the 1st, 2023. Breaking overnight, regulators seizing control of First Republic Bank and striking a deal to sell most of its assets to J.P. Morgan Chase, this is the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. It's also the third U.S. bank failure since just March. Also this morning, zero leads as FBI agents in Texas say they do not know where a mass shooting suspect is and right now have no leads. They are now offering an $80,000 reward for information on the man that they say killed five people, including a nine-year-old boy. Also, the U.S. government is helping American citizens evacuate out of Sudan. The State Department says two convoys were safely let out of the conflict zone over the weekend. Also, the clock is ticking on Hollywood to avert a writer's strike. If a new contract deal is not reached by midnight tonight, the Writers Guild of America will walk off the job. And Steph Curry sets a new NBA record, scoring 50 points, the most ever in a Game 7. The Warriors advancing to take on the Lakers. CNN This Morning starts right now. So this is what we're talking about all weekend. We were wondering, is it going to come Friday? When is this going to happen with yeah. the First Republic? But this did break just about an hour and a half ago, breaking this morning. First Republic Bank has become the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. Regulators have seized the bank, sold off most of its assets to J.P. Morgan Chase in a rescue deal as America's banking crisis flares up again. In a statement this morning, J.P. Morgan Chase's CEO, Jamie Dimon, says our government invited us and others to step up, and we did. He did note this will benefit J.P. Morgan Chase. We'll talk a lot more about it. But look, First Republic is now the third major bank to fail since March. The announcement comes just hours before markets open, and we're keeping a close eye on Wall Street to see how it reacts when the markets open. Our business and politics correspondent, Vanessa Yurkevich, outside of a First Republic Bank here in New York City. Vanessa, good morning to you. Uh, it, what is so shocking is that 11 weeks ago, Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan led the way for all these big banks to inject $30 billion into First Republic to try to save it. And even that didn't work. That's right, Poppy. And later this morning, when this First Republic branch behind me and 83 others around the country open, it will be under new ownership. J.P. Morgan Chase buying First Republic Bank in a deal overnight announced this morning by the FDIC. This was an effort by regulators to shore up consumer confidence in the banking system. As part of this deal, J.P. Morgan Chase will assume all deposits of First Republic Bank. So when people go to the bank this morning, 
their deposits are safe. This all started to unfold several weeks ago after the failure of SVB and Signature Bank. But as you mentioned, there was that big cash infusion of $30 billion led by JP Morgan. But things really started to spiral last week after the first quarter earnings call by First Republic, where they revealed that deposits fell by 40%, totaling about $100 billion. That sent stock prices falling. Just on Friday, shares were trading at about $3, down from about $122 uh, earlier in March. We do have a statement from the Treasury Department out early this morning reacting to the news. I will read that to you. Here's what they said. Quote, Treasury is encouraged that this institution was resolved with the least loss, the least cost to the deposit insurance fund and in a manner that protected all depositors. The banking system remains sound and resilient and Americans should feel confident in the safety of their deposits and the ability of the banking system to fulfill its essential function of providing credit to businesses and families. So clearly, this is an effort by the FDIC, an effort by J.P. Morgan Chase, and an effort by the Treasury Department to assure customers and consumers that the banking system here in the United States is, in fact, safe. Poppy? It's still just stunning to see three big U.S. bank failures since March. Vanessa, thank you. We'll check back in with you throughout the morning. And Caitlin and Christine, I mean, the truth is the FDIC still is going to pay 13 billion dollars here um, in terms of, of, you know, the cost of this. Well, that's what they've forecast, actually, yeah. because we don't know what the ultimate cost will be, but they've said it could be about 13, 13 yeah. billion. Yeah. And Christina Romans, you're obviously our chief business correspondent. What do we know about the details of how all of this happened and what it looks like, what they've agreed so to? It was just an amazing weekend. I, I, I got to tell you, I mean, this is J.P. Morgan taking over uh, the assets and the deposits of this bank. And then there's going to be a loss sharing provision with the FDIC for anything that comes up that could be uh, problematic on the bank's books. So a little bit of a sweetener from the FDIC to make sure that J.P. Morgan would come to the table. We know there was an auction of this bank. Um, so over the weekend, you had all these banks who were vying for pieces of, of First Republic, but it was pretty yeah, clear. Yeah, maybe PNC, J.P. Yeah. Morgan, others. By the, end of, uh, you know, by the end of last week, it, be it became pretty clear that the FDIC was going to have to step in and take over this bank. It was not going to be able to stand alone. Yeah, and I think if you're waking up this morning and you're looking at this, I, I was just texting with a top House Republican who deals with all of this, and he says essentially this is unfinished work from SVB weekend, from what happened with Signature. Valley Bank. Well, so Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah. So let's talk about what happened there, because you had this bank, um, First Republic, lost 41 percent of its deposits. A hundred billion dollars walked out of the door after um, SVB and Signature Bank failed, because what happened was that showed that these banks like First Republic, they have a lot of uninsured deposits. People didn't want to be sitting there with all of their money in a bank, more than $250,000 in a bank um, with uninsured uh, deposits. And so they walked out the front door and took their money to other banks. First Republic catered to wealthy clients on the coasts. It was known for like its $5 million jumbo mortgages. Yeah. So when you talk about Republicans in the House, look, nobody's crying over First Republic Bank, but you don't want chaos and turmoil to spread to the rest of the banking system uh, as well here. And do we think that there's going to be more chaos in the rest of the banking system as a result of this? So I've been talking to a lot of people over the weekend, and they think you call this unfinished business. They think that what happened with the 30, all that money that was uh, the lifeline that went six weeks ago that went into yeah, this the $30 bank, billion. Dollars. Right, that bought it some time. Yeah. It calmed down market fears. It bought it some time and allowed the industry to be able to find a way um, to, to manage this problem. Will there be more banks? No one knows for sure. I mean, three big bank failures in just a couple of months is really remarkable. But for the most part, um, 
most banks are perfectly healthy and will be able to manage this interest rate risk. But can we talk about the FDIC report here? Because sure. I'm obsessed with this. This is an aspect of this, you know, talking about the root causes of here and what went down. The FDIC report basically sh- said that because they have so many staffing shortages, that led to a p- part of what we've been seeing playing out with these banks. Yeah, that Fed report on the collapse of SVB was really interesting, in part because the Fed is both the regulator and the supervisor. And basically said uh, there were all these open red flags at Silicon Valley Bank um, that were not followed up on and that management didn't understand what was going on, but also just poor bank management and oversight was not as robust as it should have been. Yeah. So when you think that you have this bank and you're a regulated bank and you've got all of this oversight, really, clearly, there were a lot of shortcomings as well. Uh, All right, Christine Romans, I know you'll stay with us all morning on all these developments as we're tracking them, Poppy. Guys, thank you very much. We'll get back to that top story in just a minute. But also this developing this morning, an urgent manhunt in Texas is intensifying today as FBI agents say they don't have any tips and they're running into dead ends. Now they're offering an $80,000 reward. They're trying to find this man. Look at your screen. That is Francisco Oropesa. He is accused of killing five people, including a nine-year-old boy on Friday after his neighbor asked him to keep the noise down when he was shooting his gun in his front yard. And we're now hearing from one man whose wife and son were killed. Ed Lavendero joins us live in Cleveland, Texas with more. Is that a correct assessment, Ed, that they have no leads? That's what the FBI special agent in charge of the Houston office, who is in leading this investigation, uh, told reporters yesterday afternoon that after uh, more than 48 hours of hunting for this uh, suspect, there has been nothing that has turned up. And this comes as one of the survivors of this deadly shooting tearfully described how it all unfolded. A manhunt for the suspect accused of killing five, including a nine-year-old boy in Cleveland, Texas, continues this morning. Right now, we're just uh, we're running into dead ends. Right now, we have zero leads. More than 200 members of various law enforcement agencies are searching for Francisco Oropesa, the alleged 38-year-old gunman who the FBI says is armed and dangerous. The shooting happened Friday night after the father and husband of two of the victims, Wilson Garcia, says that he, along with two other men, approached Francisco Oropesa and asked him to stop shooting his weapon so close to their property because their baby was sleeping. Garcia says they called 911 five times to report Oropesa shooting his gun. The suspect then allegedly approached the house with his rifle about 10 to 20 minutes after the encounter. From there, the home turned into a scene of carnage that left four adults and Garcia's nine-year-old son, Daniel, all shot dead. Garcia's wife, Sonia Argentina Guzman, was killed first just outside the front door. I'm trying to be strong for my children because my daughter already more or less understood. It's very difficult when she comes and she starts asking about her mom and then about her brother. An 18-year-old was also killed, and two women who were also shot and killed while protecting the children who survived the massacre, authorities say. The three children that that we loaded that night uh, and put in the ambulance, they were covered in blood from the same ladies that were laying on top of them trying to protect them. Garcia says one of the women who was killed urged him to flee out of the window so his two other children would not lose both of their parents that night. That was my nine-year-old son and my wife, too. 
and two people who died protecting my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. My one-and-a-half-month-old son was protected with a lot of clothes so the killer wouldn't kill him, too. A vigil was held Sunday for nine-year-old Daniel at his elementary school. Supporters sang Amazing Grace in Daniel's honor as his father was seen crying. And Poppy, late Saturday night, investigators were saying that they had found uh, the suspect's clothing and a cell phone that had been discarded. They also said they believe that the suspect has communicated with friends a couple of times. Whether or not, whether or not that has continued, we don't know uh, at this point. But they are saying this morning and yesterday afternoon that the trail has gone cold. Uh, they wow. can't really say if they believe he's still in the area or perhaps somewhere else in the state. Do they know if he's Poppy? still in the U.S., Ed? I guess they don't know. I mean, they don't. I mean, I, I, right, they, they, they don't. They're saying that they just, you know, they, they can't make any assumptions. But clearly, um, this uh, suspect is a Mexican national, so there is concern uh, that perhaps he would be trying to make his way back to Mexico. But he's, uh, you know, unless he has help in, in terms of driving and that sort of thing, if he's on right. foot, right. this is heavily wooded areas. It's, uh, you know, places where it could take some time to find someone like this. There was a similar manhunt last year, and it took several weeks to find okay. uh, an inmate that had escaped from from a prison in this area, so it could take time. And Lavender, thanks for all the reporting. Also this morning, 100 Americans have now been safely evacuated out of Sudan. We are live at a port in Saudi Arabia where they are arriving, and watch this. Oh my God, she's like right in front of me. Those, those are winds so strong in Florida, they flipped a car. More on the tornadoes that tore through South Florida and Virginia next. Wow. Cars flipped on top of each other, dumpsters, you know, flung hundreds of yards, uh, you know, fences here from God knows where. I mean, it's just insane. It is just insane. This morning, the National Service Weather Service is confirming an EF2 tornado touchdown in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida on Saturday. Officials say that winds were clocked at well over 100 miles per hour. The tornado was on the ground for about 11 minutes, which was uh, unfortunately more than enough time for to do plenty of damage to homes, to cars. A similar scene played out up north over Virginia. Over 100 homes there were damaged when this massive tornado creeped onto the coast. These three schools are closed this morning as a result of what happened over the weekend. CNN's meteorologist Jennifer Gray joins us now. Uh, Jennifer, what do we see happen over, I mean, just watching this culmination of these different weather patterns playing out over the weekend was remarkable. It really was, especially across the east. That's where we saw most of the severe weather. We had three tornado reports, 32 wind reports, five hail reports. Here's a look at some of that wild weather over the weekend. Tornado getting ready to hit Bay Island. I'm not even kidding. This is real. A powerful tornado touching down in Virginia Beach and leaving a path of destruction in its wake. Tree after tree downed, homes damaged, and cars smashed. Witnesses say it all happened in an instant. I was looking around. There were times where I didn't even recognize where I was. Like, I couldn't tell because the trees, there's such, you know, beautiful, older, bigger trees, and they were gone. The aftermath creating a surreal scene in the Great Neck neighborhood. And I could not believe when I walked over here and saw this damage, but I've never seen anything like this. There was no gas. People living there reported gas leaks and power outages. Virginia Beach officials say as of now, there are no reports of any injuries. 
But Virginia Beach officials say up to 100 homes have sustained damages. That tornado, just one of several damaging storms this weekend in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. Oh my God, it's like right in front of, oh my God. Another powerful tornado flipped cars and spread debris along roads on Saturday. This video from CNN affiliate WPBF showed more cars flipped and stacked on top of each other in a parking lot. There's cars, there's you know, 20, 30 cars in the parking lot that are totaled. Uh, cars flipped on top of each other, dumpsters, you know, flung hundreds of yards, uh, you know, fences here from God knows where. I mean, it's just insane. The National Weather Service estimated peak winds of about 130 miles per hour. Grappling with the damage, many are in disbelief. The view of, of my balcony, I, I wasn't able to see the water before, and, and now I, you know, I have a, you know, I have a water view from my place, from all the tree damage. Really was remarkable what we saw, especially across Florida. You normally don't see um, tornadoes that strong down there. But all of this has moved up to the north. Caitlin, the good news is the severe threat is over, but it is going to be just a messy and soggy first start of the week for much of the northeast in Ohio Valley. Yep, we can attest to that from our trip to work this morning. <laughs> Jennifer, yeah. thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Well, to this now, actor Michael J. Fox is opening up about living with Parkinson's disease. He sat down with CBS Sunday Morning, and he said that every day gets harder and tougher. He is 61 years old, and the actor says he knows he's not going to live to be 80. Watch this. This gift that keeps on taking, but it's a gift. Every time I see you, I can see it's taken a little bit more of something. It's been 30-plus years. There's not many of us that have had... Had disease for 30 years. But at some point, Parkinson's going to make the call for you, isn't it? Yeah, it's behind on the door. Hey, I mean, I, I, I won't lie, it's getting, hard. it's getting harder. It's getting tougher. Every day it gets tougher. Um, but but that's, that's the way it is. You heard him there saying it's banging on the door. Fox revealed that he recently underwent a spinal surgery for a benign tumor and has suffered two broken arms, a broken hand, and broken bones in his face as a result of falls. But he says he is focused on optimism and he is always grateful. I recognize how hard this is for people and I recognize how hard it is for me. But I have a certain set of skills that allow me to deal with this stuff. And then I realize with gratitude, optimism is sustainable. If you can find something to be grateful for, then you find something to look forward to and you carry on. If that doesn't give you some perspective, I don't know what will, right? I'm always amazed by how candid he is about this, but also optimistic. Like, he always finds a moment to, to try to say something positive about it. And he's handled it with such grace. It was so hard to watch, but so important to watch. Yeah. Perspective, for sure. Yeah. Also, this morning, we're tracking this. Chief Justice John Roberts has declined to testify before Congress when it comes to ethics in the Supreme Court. Ahead, a unified statement from all nine justices will tell you what they said. And soon, protests in France pick up again after the retirement age was officially raised. We're live in Paris. We should be inspired by the events in France. They rioted when the retirement age went up two years to 64. They rioted because they didn't want to work till 64. Meanwhile, in America, we have an 80-year-old man begging us for four more years of work. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. 
Well, a good news update for you this morning. A U.S. Navy ship has evacuated 100 Americans from war-torn Sudan, and they have arrived in Saudi Arabia over the weekend. The U.S. government launched two convoys to get some of those stranded citizens out of the country. The New York Times reports that armed American drones flew overhead and guarded the buses as they made that 525-mile journey to the Red Sea. Our CNN international correspondent Larry Madoa is at the seaport in Jeddah. Where are those Americans? We see them behind you, Larry. They're being processed right now. And you actually traveled with them on this journey. What can you tell us? So this is where, when they arrive in Jeddah, they come here to the Jeddah Islamic Court where they're getting processed. They receive, they receive the U.S. Embassy officials, and then they clear customs, and then the journey. They get a couple of days here in Saudi Arabia before they're off to the U.S. So many of them are just relieved to be out of that and being back to safety in the U.S. But we took a journey, a similar journey that they've just taken with the Royal Saudi Navy across the port, across the Red Sea to Port Sudan and back. This is what that journey is like. 2 a.m. and they're finally getting out of Sudan after many anxious days. Saudi soldiers check documents and let them through. A nightmare almost over. Thousands of people have made the over 500-mile journey from the capital Khartoum to here in Port Sudan. One person told us it took them 36 hours, but finally on a boat and eventually to a ship to Jeddah. A sad final goodbye to Sudan, victims of the stormy waters in Africa's third largest nation. Uh, it's very, very hard for me and very, very hard and very painful for me because it's like a second home, my home. CNN joined Saudi forces on an evacuation voyage from Jeddah to Port Sudan and back, bringing more people one step closer to safe shores. But the demand is high and the military ships can only take so many people at a time. Our round trip was more than 24 hours, but brought back only 52 people across the Red Sea. Sudanese-American businessman Adil Bashir can finally sleep undisturbed for the first time in two weeks. He says his car dealership in Khartoum was trashed, burnt, and some vehicles stolen. So he took the risky drive to Port Sudan. A lot of human body, dead body on the street. You say you were detained by men in Rapid Support Forces uniform after you told them you're a U.S. citizen. Uh, maybe you are a U.S. citizen, you are a spy. I believe they want us to be like a human shield because they were 13 ahead of me. As more people escaped from Sudan, another ceasefire was broken over the weekend with fighting in the country entering a third week. The Saudi port city of Jeddah has become the main landing point for thousands fleeing the conflict. The Saudis are throwing everything at this rescue operation. The assets, the capability, military, civilian in Saudi is taking uh, the civilian from Sudan. So as, as long as it's safe, uh, we will keep doing our role. This large commercial ship brought nearly 2,000 evacuees from Port Sudan, one of the largest arrivals in Jeddah so far. Hanadi Ahmad and her Sudanese-American family were among those on the vessel received by U.S. Embassy staff. They're relieved to be safe, but heartbroken for those who couldn't get out. Very bad, Wallah. It's very bad because all my family is here. My mom, my dad, and it's very difficult, Wallah. You're scared for them? Yeah. I am so sorry. It's okay. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, we are out. 
So you can see the impossible choices people have to make. Happy to be out of an active war zone, but also some survivors' guilt. But when they come here, they get received by the entire U.S. Embassy team. That is the Consulate General there for our side who's leading this operation. And he didn't tell us whether there's more ships expected here, but there's suddenly more Americans still stuck in Port Sudan, hoping to make that journey across the Red Sea here to Jeddah and eventually back to the U.S., guys. Larry, it's so striking to see the journey uh, with our own eyes. Thank you for going along and bringing us that report. We're checking other international headlines this morning because in just over an hour, thousands of protesters are expected to take to the streets in France yet again. These protests have been over that controversial pension reform that was signed into law three weeks ago by the French president, Emmanuel Macron. It raises the retirement age from 62 to 64. Huge crowds are expected on this May Day, which is France's Labor Day. CNN's correspondent Melissa Bell is on the streets of Paris for CNN this morning. Melissa, what does it look like on the ground so far this morning as these protesters are, are gathering together? Well, as you said, Kaylin, we've got over an hour to go before they start. But as you can see, the crowds are gathering already. I'm just going to give you an idea of what the streets around the Place de la République look like. You can see there the balloons. Those are the trade union balloons that will be part of the march once it eventually gets going. As you can see, always it's well organized. You come, you have a hot dog. Uh, they hang out for a bit before they get going. Up there on the Place de la République, you can see one protester has got up there already with his German flag. A reminder that it isn't just in France today that they're protesting, Caitlin. This is happening in other European countries and over similar issues, the cost of living inflation. You mentioned the pension reform. That has, of course, been at the heart of the protests here in France ever since that protest movement began on January 19th. But today, of course, is May the 1st. This is about a much wider uh, series of issues that people want to protest about, inflation, the cost of living. Every May the 1st, the French come out and demonstrate they take to the streets. What authorities are expecting today as a result of that uh, pension reform protest is that this could be one of the biggest May the 1st protests uh, that we've seen in a long time or even uh, ever. So we're expecting to see large numbers. The authorities saying 500 to 600,000 across the country. The unions expecting far, far more people to turn out, Caitlin. Yeah, it's generated so much attention. It was even a joke at the White House Correspondents' Dinner on Saturday night. Melissa Bell, we'll see what it looks like as these protesters are gathering. We'll check back in with you. Thank you. All right, new video for you this morning. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is in Israel. He is meeting with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The significance of the Speaker's first trip abroad ahead. Also, Supreme Court Justice Alito says he has a pretty good idea of who leaked that draft opinion overturning Roe versus Wade. This morning, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, as you can see here, is in Israel. He's preparing to deliver a historic speech before the parliament. McCarthy met with Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu earlier this morning. He vowed to invite the Prime Minister to Washington if President Biden doesn't do so soon. CNN's Melanie Zanona is live on Capitol Hill tracking McCarthy's visit to Israel. Melanie, I'm getting some 2015 John Boehner vibes from <laughs> this invitation that McCarthy is extending. What else do we know about his trip here that he's making to Israel? Yeah, this is a big trip for Kevin McCarthy. It is his first foreign trip as speaker, and he will become the second speaker ever to address the parliament. And it's coming amid the 75th anniversary of the country's founding. Kevin McCarthy is traveling there with a bipartisan group of lawmakers, including Steny Hoyer, a former Democratic member of leadership. But as you noted, Caitlin, he did take the opportunity to take a partisan jab at Biden, someone that he's been locked in a stalemate with over the debt ceiling. And he said that if Biden doesn't invite Netanyahu, 
Netanyahu to the White House, that he will do so himself and invite him to Congress. So we'll see whether that pans out. But Kevin McCarthy, it's a big trip for him today, so we'll be watching very closely. Yeah, and of course, Boehner famously invited Netanyahu to come and address Congress when President Obama was in office without telling the White House about it caused quite a controversy in Washington. The other thing, though, is that you mentioned there are Democrats and Republicans who are on this trip with McCarthy. This comes at a time when there is a standoff between the two sides over the debt ceiling as they are encouraging President Biden to speak, to sit down with Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy mentioned the fact that they have not done so here. Um, this is what Majority Leader Steve Scalise said about these negotiations or lack of over the weekend. The White House needs to ultimately get into this negotiation. The president's been in hiding for two months, Martha. That's not acceptable to Americans. They expect the president to sit in a room with Speaker McCarthy and start negotiating. Congressman, one one waiting and trying to get a debt crisis. Now, Melanie, as you know, the White House would push back on the idea that Biden's been hiding for two months. They say he's not going to negotiate in the way that Republicans want him to when it comes to the debt ceiling. What's your sense of the latest of this? Well, at this point, the two sides are really still talking past each other, despite the fact that House Republicans did pass their own debt ceiling plan. Just take a listen to how both sides are really digging in. The uh, Senate, uh, the Schumer Senate, uh, they have no ideas either. It's just uh, a repeated rhetoric. Our recommendation is we passed it through the House, take it up in the Senate and pass it. The Republicans are demanding hostage negotiations where they will uh, crash the full faith and credit of the United States. So as you can see, Caitlin, we are nowhere closer really to actually solving this crisis, but we should get more information in the coming days about the date at which we will actually reach our borrowing limit. Once that happens, the pressure will increase for both sides to come to the negotiating table, but we're just not there yet. Yeah, nowhere closer to a solution, but certainly closer to a default potentially. Melanie, thank you for that update. Tomorrow, the Senate Judiciary Committee will hold a hearing on the Supreme Court and ethics. This is as Democrats call for reform after a recent ProPublica report shocked everyone and revealed that Justice Clarence Thomas uh, did not disclose luxury trips paid for by a Republican mega donor and Texas billionaire Harlan Crow. Uh, it's gotten so much attention that even comedian Roy Wood Jr. poked fun at the conservative justice at the White House Correspondents Association dinner on Saturday. A billionaire named Harlan Crow is flying Clarence Thomas all over the world on unreported trips like an Instagram model. We can all see Clarence Thomas but he belongs to billionaire Harlan Crow. And that's what an NFT is. It elicited uh, quite the laughs from the audience, but on a very serious note, our Joan Biskupic is with us, our senior Supreme Court analyst, to talk about this hearing that Chief Justice Roberts and all nine justices in this statement said they're not talking. That's right, Poppy. Good morning to you and Caitlin. It will not be a funny hearing, that's for sure, because the people best suited to address this issue will not be there. Remember, this does arise not just at the time of the ProPublica report, but it seems like, you know, every other week we're hearing more about justices who received trips or gifts and did not uh, put them on their financial disclosure forms. The justices, when they said they weren't going to come, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts issued a statement that included uh, several guidelines that the justices say they follow when deciding whether their uh, off-bench behavior is ethical. The subtext of all that was, though, we know best, we're being wrongly criticized, and we're also under serious threat. 
uh, in regard to conflicts of interest for uh, speeches or appearances they might make. They said those have to be assessed in the eyes of a reasonable, unbiased observer who would be aware of all the relevant facts. Again, the tone is, we will know best what to do. And then at the end of this statement, they said, you know, we're, we're not going to disclose things that could possibly put us under any kind of physical threat. They reinforced, you know, the, the very real truth that uh, many people in Washington and in the judiciary have been threatened in recent mm -hmm. months and years. But it's almost <coughs> as if they're saying, again, we know best. We're wrongly, we're being wrongly criticized, and uh, we can assess is exactly what you need to know, which is not going to be a helpful situation for outsiders, watchdog groups, and people on the Hill trying to assess whether they are operating with any kind of ethical uh, guardrails. Yeah. yeah, I don't think that's going to be sufficient for Congress. We'll see what lawmakers say and what they can actually do about it. Joe, and this also comes as we heard from Justice Alito saying he thinks he knows who leaked that draft opinion uh, foretelling that the, co the court was going to overturn Roe versus Wade, but it doesn't seem like here the court can prove it or the idea that he says this person was not motivated by, you know, a conservative ideology. You know, Caitlin, that's exactly right. We are exactly one year to the week that that draft was released. So, you know, there's a lot of trauma and angst in the air for those of us in the Supreme Court orbit. And the court undertook, you know, an eight, nine month investigation of who might have leaked it and came up short, said, we do not know. And then for Justice Alito to make this claim without revealing any kind of evidence, but at the same time not revealing evidence, but suggesting it was from somebody on the left, really is another thing that kind of shakes your confidence in the institution. Because I have to say, when you step back and think about how that leak affected deliberations and affected the majority that Samuel Alito had to reverse nearly a century of reproductive rights, that leak froze in his votes. That wrote that uh, leak benefited Samuel Alito, it benefited conservatives, it benefited people on the right. So I'm hoping that if he truly does know uh, who did it, he releases that because we all would want to know, Caitlin, Poppy. That's a really good point, um, Joan, thank you very much. And that's a really good sure. point that Joan makes because there were these negotiations after the leak, especially Roberts, thinking maybe they could bring some people over to the other side. but. Jones reporting has been that that leak really cemented that 5-4 decision. And also we learned like about the investigation that they didn't they didn't interview as many people as you as thought they that they would. It, it was That's a very right. interesting like how they investigated this and it's obviously a, it's a very opaque institution. Yeah, the reality. Um, so we'll keep following that. Of course, meantime, Arizona school districts are struggling to find enough teachers to fill their classrooms, their creative approach to help those struggling financially. It shouldn't have to be a vow of poverty to be a teacher. What is walking away from that like? I'm a really proud public school teacher and it's hard, it's hard to know that I can't do it anymore. This morning, Arizona is trying a different approach, a new approach to help fill a teacher shortage, ones that we've seen across all of the United States. But in Arizona, they're now trying to offer housing. It's a combination of low salaries and high living costs there that has made it very difficult for educators to live where they teach. CNN's correspondent Gabe Cohen has our report. Like so many teachers, Louisa Gamboa is sacrificing more and more for the job she loves. Give me one word that starts with the letter Q. 
That's why she lives with three other teachers in a three-bedroom home. We're on our way home to Prescott. And, and carpools 30 minutes to her special ed classroom in Chino Valley, Arizona. That was the closest affordable house? Yes, yes. And that's the only available one. Has it been difficult making it month to month? It's very difficult. Almost nothing to, to spare. The combination of low salaries and increasingly little affordable housing has worsened the teacher shortage in states like Arizona. So, desperate to attract educators, Chino Valley Unified School District is breaking ground on a teacher housing project, also known as a teacherage, building 10 tiny homes behind an elementary school where teachers will pay well below the market rate for rent. If they can save a couple hundred dollars, I think that ultimately that could make the difference. It's a matter of money. Be watching, Dad. Jason White, a 50-year-old high school English teacher living with his parents near Phoenix, heard about Chino Valley's project and applied for a job. Do you think you'd take a job there if you didn't get that housing? I, I wouldn't, um, and it's not a think or not think, it's I simply wouldn't because I couldn't afford to live there. At least eight Arizona districts are creating their own teacherage, with some help from a federal grant. This vacant school near Sedona will be turned into 11 apartments. In Prescott, I think this could be a game changer for us. Six modular homes will sit behind an elementary school. I hate to compare it to this, but in some ways it's kind of like the Hunger Games. Having something like this available maybe put, gives us a leg up on the competition, so to speak. Teacher housing projects are popping up across the country, from California to West Virginia. But some are skeptical of teacherages. I think our concern would be that a professional educator would not only work for the district, but the district would also be their landlord. Marisol Garcia heads the Arizona Education Association, the union that represents public school teachers, and she sits on the governor's new educator retention task force. We're treating a symptom and not the illness, and that is we don't have enough educators who want to enter the profession, who want to stay in the profession. A recent study found more teachers than usual left the classroom last year, at a time when students are still recovering from steep pandemic learning loss. Advocates blame a range of issues like workload, student behavior, politics in school, and most of all, salary. It shouldn't have to be a vow of poverty to be a teacher, and that's what it feels like. Megan Brown is leaving her special ed classroom next month after 12 years of teaching. She and her husband, a firefighter, live with her parents, struggling to save money to buy a home and start a family. We can't both be in helping professions, so um, I decided to leave. What is walking away from that like? I'm a really proud public school teacher, and it's hard. It's hard to know that I can't do it anymore. Now, a lot of districts have given out pay raises during the pandemic to retain teachers, but a new report found that the national average public school teacher salary has only gone up about four and a half percent over the past two years. Four and a half percent, Caitlin. Uh, that's well behind the high inflation that we've seen. And so financially, uh, life as a public school teacher really hasn't gotten better. If anything, based on this report, it's gotten worse. Yeah, it's just amazing to see how we treat our public educators. Yeah. My family is public educators, and it's just, it's awful. Gabe Cohen, thank you for that report, though. Really good look into that. It is. I think it, their struggles. it shows what we value as a society. Yeah. Are we going to invest in our kids? Are we going to invest in our teachers, our schools? Come on. Uh, also this, Steph Curry putting on a historic performance while helping send his team epic. to the second round of the NBA playoffs. Caitlin tells me it's epic. This is my <laughs> first time seeing it. There you go. It's amazing. The highlights ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
In sports this morning, what a night. So they tell me. I want like a Steph Curry button in life. So when <laughs> things are not going great, you can just push it because it's amazing what he did. Can we get a Steph Curry button, please? <laughs> 50 <laughs> points. Someone invent one in of those. Game, what's that red button? Oh, the easy button. Yeah, I, I want a Steph Curry have. button. <laughs> 50 <laughs> points in game seven uh, win for the Warriors. And now they'll face off with LeBron James and the Lakers. Whoa, Coy. Coy Wire. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a good team. They're in a tough building. And still, yes. he, he goes crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, he, he is not human. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> Teammate Clay Thompson said that this is a Game 7 I'll forever remember as the Steph Curry game. Sit back and be mesmerized by a master of his craft. Curry taking over in a winner-go-home Game 7 on the road, as Caitlin mentioned, against the Kings, becoming the first person in NBA history to score 50 points in a Game 7. Portland superstar Damian Lillard tweeting, Steph, you filthy animal, packing up a very good team in a tough building. Seven three-pointers for Curry. Remember, the Warriors lost 30 of their 41 away games this season, but Curry put the team on his back when it mattered most. Warriors win 120-100. The GOAT spoke afterwards. You define the odds by you know, still playing at this high of a level, and I know everybody wants to see you fail. That's kind of the nature of you know where we're at right now. So... Uh, you know, we love and we still can prove a lot of people wrong. So who can stop Steph Curry? <sighs> Hopefully we'll never find out. It's not cocky. That's confidence. Showdown of epic proportions in round two next. Curry and LeBron. Uh, they've gone three out of four times in playoff series. It's gone to Curry for the win. All have been in the finals when LeBron was in Cleveland. And Caitlin and Poppy, how about Curry? He's a master of the mind. He'd missed four or five free throws the past two games. He was seen smiling on the free throw line during this game. He said attitude can manifest a lot of things. I wanted to live in the moment. And uh, he sure did that. <laughs> yeah. It's when the, when the chips are down. He's at his best. It's just Love amazing. That. Coy. Uh, all right. Can't wait to watch later this week. Thank you. Thank you. Right. See you then. This morning continues right now. What's now the second biggest bank failure in U.S. history. Most of First Republic Bank is now being bought by J.P. Morgan Chase in a deal arranged by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. This is a bit of a seismic moment. These banks are not well regulated and they admitted it themselves. Investigators continue this manhunt. They have been searching for Francisco Oropesa since he was able to flee the scene. They do believe this man is still armed and dangerous. This $80,000 is a real good motivator to have somebody turn him in. We're asking everyone for your help till we can bring this monster to justice. A powerful tornado touching down in Virginia Beach, just one of several damaging storms this weekend. The National Weather Service reported winds of about 130 miles per hour. I could not believe when I walked over here and saw this damage. I've never seen anything like this. Officials say the U.S. has overseen the departure of nearly 1,000 American citizens stuck in the conflict zone. Another ceasefire was broken with fighting in the country entering a third week. It's very bad because all my family is here. You're scared for them. Yeah. I had a lot of Ron DeSantis jokes written, but Mickey Mouse beat the hell out of me got there first. We should be inspired by the events in France. They rioted when the retirement age went up two years to 64. Meanwhile, in America, we have an 80-year-old man begging us for four more years of work. I've had a few laughs, a few jokes, but at the end of the day, Washington won't change me. I'll change Washington. The 
the Harry Enton. Harry was so great on the red carpet at the White House Correspondents Center this week. It was my first, first time there. And what'd you, you think? convinced me to go. Nerd Here's our picture. Full effect. Us together on the red carpet. I had a total ball. I've never been with so many people in my life. That ballroom, 2,500 people. Yeah, 2,600 people. It's but crazy. It was a ball. I had a lot of fun. At 12.30 p.m., I have to tell you, I was like, I have to go to bed. 12.30 a.m. A.m. P.m. That was right she stayed until 12.30 p.m. the next that day. That picture is me and you right before 12.30 a.m. And I was like, okay, I'm old. I need to go to bed. But I had a ball. Yeah. Thanks in part to you, the queen of D.C. Quite a moment. And we have more of President Biden's jokes. You saw him. He laughed very hard at that joke from yes. Roy Jr. About, about how he's begging for four more years in office, despite <laughs> what we're seeing happening in France, something we're tracking here. And he joked about his own age. Yeah. Biden. Yeah. So it's quite a ahead. moment for that. Uh, we'll have more on the dinner later on in the show. But this morning, we want to start with some big headlines that came out this weekend. This morning, the man who was accused of opening fire and killing five of his neighbors is still on the run. Police say have, they have a, they're on the trail. They're trying to find him. But so far, it has run cold. There's an $80,000 reward, though, that is being offered to help track down 38-year-old Francisco Oropesa, who the shooting happened on Friday night in the city of Cleveland, Texas. It's about an hour north of Houston. According to the sheriff's office there, Oropesa had been drinking and was shooting a rifle in his yard when his neighbors asked him to stop because a baby was trying to sleep. The sheriff says that the suspect then went to the neighbor's house where he shot the victims. Everybody that was shot was shot from the neck up, almost execution style, uh, in, basically in the head. Five people were killed, including a nine-year-old. You see him right there. Nine-year-old Daniel Enrique Lasso Guzman and his mother, Sonia, both of them murdered. The child's father says he called 911 five times to report the suspect shooting his gun. That was my nine-year-old son and my wife, too. And two people who died protecting my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. My one-and-a-half-month-old son was protected with a lot of clothes so the killer wouldn't kill him, too. Wow. The sheriff said his team got there as fast as they could, but said because the force is small and covers the county at large, the whole thing, officers did not get there fast enough. Our chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller, is with us now. It is so, so tragic. It's what? extraordinarily sad, and, and it's a sign of what we're seeing these days. I think it really is. Also, the fact that they cannot find this guy, they don't even know if he's in the country. Well, he's, he's from Mexico, has contacts in Mexico, is in Texas, could have fled to Mexico. You know, he did this terrible act and then um, fled into the woods near his home. Uh, they found clothes. So, you know, he's thinking there's going to be tracking dogs and bloodhounds. They found his phone. So he's anticipating that law enforcement would be looking for a signal. So this is someone who has some skills and, you know, they have a challenge. And what does that look like? I mean, they, they're offering this $80,000 reward. The fact that they can't find him, though, what else do they do? So that looks like a lot of things. You know, if you think back to the, the Olympic Park bomber who mm -hmm. fled into the Nantahala National Forest, Eric Robert Rudolph, 1997, he hid there for years undetected um, as a fugitive being sought for by hundreds, sometimes thousands of law enforcement people. But... He planned every bombing carefully, and he planned his escape carefully. 
This is a spontaneous incident out of anger and a spontaneous escape. There's no plan behind this except running. So given his resources and background, and given you've got the FBI involved, you've got the U.S. Marshals, you've got the sheriff, you've got money on the street, you have uh, informants from the criminal world, you've got an $80,000 reward for the public. Mm -hmm. um, the complicating factor is if he made it into Mexico, uh, not, not a game ender, complicating. You have zero leads, what do you do, John? You do one of two things. Uh, one, you could increase the reward, but if you have $80,000 and you have zero leads, it's probably not about the money. Um, it's about increasing community engagement. To get yeah. people to talk. And I mean, this is, if there was any case ever that should generate community engagement, um, <coughs> even in a community where people might be reluctant to talk to the police, this should be the deal breaker there. Yeah, it's just so concerning as we're seeing this bigger pattern of this snap aggression. And we'll have more on that, I know, to come. So keep us updated on, on how this investigation does progress. Will do. All right, breaking this morning, First Republic Bank becoming the second largest bank failure. Yeah. This is really notable. Obviously, regulators seized it and struck a rescue deal with J.P. Morgan Chase <coughs> to buy most of the bank's assets for $10.6 billion. We're learning J.P. Morgan Chase did not assume First Republic's corporate debt or their preferred stock. Instead, in a statement, the CEO, Jamie Dimon, said, quote, our government invited us and others to step up, and we did. First Republic is now the third major bank to fail since March as America's banking crisis has flared up again. We're keeping a close eye on Wall Street right now to see how stocks react when the market does open soon. CNN business and politics correspondent Vanessa Yurkevich, meanwhile, is live outside a First Republic bank here in New York City. Vanessa, I know they're going to open this morning operating as J.P. Morgan. People will have access to this. This is coming, though, after First Republic got that $30 billion lifeline from other banks. Clearly, it did not. I mean, it helped them limp along for the last few weeks, but it did not help them ultimately in the end. Exactly. And that's why here today, this branch behind me, as well as 30, uh, 83 others around the country are going to open under new ownership. J.P. Morgan Chase buying First Republic Bank in a deal that was announced by the FDIC early this morning. And this marks the second largest bank failure in U.S. history, the third bank failure in just the last couple weeks. And this is an effort by regulators to shore up consumer confidence in the banking system. But but the FDIC takes control of this bank uh, on Sunday, opens an auction. J.P. Morgan clearly the winning bid on this. But this all started several weeks ago when you had SVB and Signature Bank failing. That created some nerves about First Republic. You then have a first quarter earnings call just last week by First Republic where they announced that deposits fell by 41 percent, totaling $100 billion. That sent the stock market spiraling. You had uh, shares of First Republic falling by last Friday to about $3 a share, down from about $122 in early March. Now, the Treasury Department out this morning with a statement on this deal. They said, quote, the banking system remains sound and resilient, and Americans should feel confident in the safety of their deposits and the ability of the banking system to fulfill its essential function of providing credit to businesses and families. But, Caitlin, we should note there is a cost to the FDIC, about $13 billion. But at the same time, you have J.P. Morgan Chase paying about $10.6 billion to the FDIC to close this deal. Caitlin.
Yeah, and J.P. Morgan was already the nation's largest bank. They just got even bigger. I think that's going to get a lot more scrutiny from Washington. Vanessa, we'll check in with you this morning. Thank you. Yeah, it will get scrutiny, that's for sure. Uh, when I sat down with J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon just last month, I asked him about these string of bank failures. Would there be more? Here's what he said then. This is not 2008. Okay, this is uh, much more limited. There are only a handful of banks that had this particular problem. Uh, they'll eventually be resolved one way or another. And I think then people should take a deep breath. In a week or two, you, a lot of these banks can be reporting earnings. I think they'll probably be pretty good. What we subsequently learned as we bring in Roger Altman, former deputy secretary of the Treasury and founder and senior chairman of Evercore. Roger, thank you. What we learned when those bank earnings came in is how much money fled from First Republic in right. the first quarter. But it's notable because Jamie Dimon, who's now leading the bank that is buying up most of their assets, is the one who led the initial attempt to rescue. He's the one who picked up the phone, called the other bankers, said, let's get in here. Let's try to rescue First Republic. I wonder why it didn't work. I think it didn't work because the, the deposits kept leaving First Republic. What basically happened here is that after the failure of Silicon Valley Bank a few weeks ago, a lot of depositors just simply decided that they didn't want their money at medium-sized banks, and they moved the, that money either to the very largest banks, like J.P. Morgan or Bank America, mm -hmm. or to money market funds. Uh, and First Republic, in recent weeks, lost almost all of its deposits. And what happens is they had to replace those deposits with a higher cost loans from the Federal Home Loan Bank Board and from the Fed, and that crushed their earnings, that crushed their share price, and it, it snowballed downhill. If you're waking up this morning and you have your deposits at uh, First Republic, if you have a mortgage through First Republic, if you pay your small business payroll through First Republic, what do you need to know? You're fine? You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. In fact, all depositors in the United States today are fine. Apparently, up to any ceiling, because... Well, the, 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 the new policy essentially... Well, the new policy we'll essentially is, first, all deposits up to 250000 are and have for a long time been guaranteed by the FDIC. Second, if your bank is threatened, it becomes shaky, the, the federal authorities in recent weeks have made clear that they will protect all deposits regardless of size. So, effectively... If your bank is sound, your deposits are fine because the bank is sound. If your bank somehow becomes shaky, right. your deposits are fine because the federal authorities will protect them. Two of the things we've learned that helped lead to, to this failure of First Republic, two-thirds of their deposits were uninsured. That a lot of wealthy clients, business owners, you know, but if, if you talk about paying a payroll, for example, for a company of 100 people, a week payroll, you know, two right. weeks is going to top the FDIC right. insured amount of $250,000. But they had a lot of uninsured deposits, and they also had a, a loan-to-capital ratio that was way bigger than most, 111%, meaning they had more loaned out than they had deposits in the bank. Do, can you regulate against those things? What would prevent something like this? Well, first of all, Poppy, there's or nothing wrong with having a lot of business deposits right. which go beyond 250000 If you're a bank, you want that. Right. So there's nothing unhealthy, inherently unhealthy about that. What really happened here, and also happened with Silicon Valley Bank, is that in, in the last year or so, as interest rates rose very quickly, with the Federal Reserve trying to fight inflation and being a little late to that game, um, they, they, they found themselves with a mismatch. They had taken deposits, invested mm -hmm. them in longer-term assets, mm -hmm. like federal bonds and, and, and mortgages, and as interest rates rose, uh, they started to lose money because the cost of ineffective their liabilities went up and the, and the, and the yeah. returns from their assets didn't. 
and they had a, a, a mismatch. In this case, it wasn't quite as bad as Silicon Valley Bank, but yeah. it was unhealthy. And that's what really brought them down. So I, I thought it was interesting that Gary Cohn, who worked in the Trump administration, was also one of the top guys at Goldman Sachs for a long time. What he said about this, because remember, on Friday, right before we've seen this bank failure, we got this Fed analysis of all of right. the problems, both in the government and at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature yeah. Bank. But here's what Gary Cohn said about that. Let's listen. I mean, this is a, a bit of a seismic moment because we believe in the United States, and I think the U.S. population believes that the banks where they deposit their hard-earned money are well-regulated. Right. And we have found out this week in the Fed's own report that these banks are not well-regulated, and, the, and they admitted it themselves. You were Deputy Secretary of the Treasury. Do, do you agree that there are questions about whether the Fed has a handle on this in terms of how they were regulating and watching these banks and protecting people? Yes. I mean, as he just said, I think it was Friday last week, Michael Barr, who's yeah. relatively new in the job, the new Fed governor responsible for bank supervision, admitted it was a pretty remarkable admission that the Fed failed to properly supervise Silicon Valley Bank. There were red flags everywhere and their response was passive. And, and, and that's obviously unfortunate, but it's also a good wake up call because now with these three failures, Silicon Valley Bank signature, and now First Republic, they're going to have to go back to the drawing boards and, and, and rethink all of their approaches to examination and supervision. And ultimately, that'll probably be a good thing. Now, there's one other factor here, which Gary didn't mention. Hmm. In, at, right after the 2008 financial crisis, the Dodd-Frank financial reform bill was passed, and it tightened controls over banking, tighter liquidity ratios, tighter capital ratios, Stress limited tests. on leverage. And then a few years later, about four years ago, five years ago, uh, legislation was passed to loosen that back up again. And I think in retrospect, yeah. that latter legislation was a mistake mm -hmm. and played a role in this also. Yeah. And the Fed report this weekend pointed that out, although, you've, you know, that was passed by 17 Democrats in the Senate, too. And a lot of them are still defending well, it. Uh, and what was behind that bill was that the, the Dodd-Frank legislation of 2011 uh, was very uh, turned out to be very costly for a lot of small banks and rural banks mm -hmm. to comply with. And so the spirit of loosening that up was, was probably right, but it, it just went too far. And some banks like Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank were not as tightly con regulated right. as they would have been That's if right. that had, bill hadn't so passed. Now the question is, will Congress act? I, I, don't, I don't know. We'll watch. Unlikely, I think, over the short term, which is why think. the federal authorities have said all deposits will be yeah. protected regardless right. of size. Because in a perfect world, you'd pass new legislation uh, reforming the deposit insurance system. But in this environment, this okay. polarized environment, that probably won't happen. Well, Deputy Secretary Altman, thank you for your time. My pleasure. And your analysis. Caitlin. Yeah, we'll see what the markets think when they open shortly. Also this morning, outgoing mayor, Chicago mayor, Lori Lightfoot, is actually going to join us live here in studio. We're going to talk to her about her time in office, how she thinks crime in the U.S. could shape the 2024 presidential race. Also, watch this. That's surf rider. Tornado getting ready to hit Bay Island. I'm not even kidding. This is real. A Virginia man captured the moment where a tornado crept onto the coast. More on the severe weather there ahead. Also, these are live pictures this morning out of Davenport, Iowa, where communities along the cresting Mississippi River are working to keep flood water out of their homes this morning. More CNN this morning to come after the break. 
Virginia Beach is now declared a state of emergency after a powerful tornado touched down in the city. Matt Surf Rider. Tornado getting ready to hit Bay Island. I'm not even kidding. This is real. You see all of the boats there. We are also told around 100 homes were damaged. Three schools are actually closed this morning because of the weather that I saw over the weekend. Thankfully, there are no immediate reports of deaths or injuries. Also this morning, we want to go to the Midwest, though, where the Mississippi River is cresting to dangerous levels. People who live along the river in states like Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa and Illinois have all been stockpiling sandbags, pumping out water as the river levels there are rising. CNN's Adrian Broadus is live in Davenport, Iowa. Adrian, you've been tracking all of this, I know, to see what these preparations look like. The scene behind you right now looks a lot like the one that we saw just on Friday. Um, what steps are they taking when it comes to the preparations, and is the flooding let up at all? In some parts of the state, Caitlin, yes. And to acknowledge what you said, you said it looks like it did on Friday. One thing is different. The train tracks are now covered with water. When we were here Friday, we were able to make our way across the train tracks. And as you can see at this hour, there is a train making its way through downtown Davenport slowly but surely. Fire hydrants are submerged in the water here. About a block from where we are right now, we visited Mary's Bar. And the business owner there, as well as some of his patrons, survived the flood of 2019. And if history has taught them anything, they say they're confident their sandbagging efforts will keep the water at bay. Listen in. This time around, we knew ahead of time what to do. So, um, I don't know, I just kind of take charge. Bobby let me take charge. And I took all the volunteers who weren't sure what to do and organized them into, you know, um, uh, a, a, team. a team. Thank you. Teamwork. So, yeah, I probably laid about 90% of these by hand, but it, it worked. They estimated they used about 180,000 tons of sand. Meanwhile, this river here in downtown Davenport, the Mississippi River, is expected to crest today. Caitlin? Adrian, you're in downtown Davenport. Do most of the streets look like where you're standing now, just basically completely impassable for cars? No, not all of the streets, just this uh, centralized area. For example, where we are staying overnight, there's no water there. If you drive a little bit deeper into the city, there's no water there. And again, this is about as highest as it will get. It's expected to crest today at 21 or so feet. Wow, we see how slowly that train is moving behind you. Adrian Broadus, thank you for that. A mysterious uptick in brain abscesses in children around the Las Vegas area. What the CDC is saying and what to look out for in your child, that's ahead. Also, take a look at this new image from NASA. It shows a giant blob of seaweed. It's headed towards the U.S. What does it mean for your beach vacation that you have planned? We have Layla Santiago tracking it in Key West this morning. I'll let you know. Florida's beaches might start looking a bit more goopy. A type of large brown seaweed has already begun washing on shore on beaches in the Caribbean, Mexico, South Florida. The peak is not expected until June. Take a look at this imagery from NASA. It shows the scale of the approximate 13 million ton floating blob of algae stretching from the west coast of Africa to the Gulf of Mexico. It was record. It was a record size for March. Newly released data show April matched the record-setting uh, amount previously observed 
Joining us now in Key West, Florida, CNN correspondent Leila Santiago. I've seen this kind of seaweed in Mexico, just like it really makes the beaches yeah. not as pretty, that's for sure. Yeah, not as pretty and, quite frankly, a, a bit smelly. I have it ready to go, ready to show you right here, Poppy. This is sargassum mixed in with a, a few other things, and this is what is inundating uh, Florida's coast. Specifically, they're expecting the East Coast. And remember, last month we talked about this, but now uh, we're actually starting to see it come in in those record numbers that scientists predicted. So much so that take a look over here. The beach rakers here on this beach in Key West have already arrived and have already already done one run through on what's hitting uh, the Florida coast right now. See, let's 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 go for a walk so I can kind of show you how all of this stuff just piles up and again gets pretty smelly uh, because it decays out here. And as we mentioned, this is what one scientist told me is just the tip of the iceberg more expected because when this is out there, it is not only right now a 5000 mile long body of seaweed. It is still growing while it's out there. So it is increasing in the amount that will be headed this way, as you mentioned, expected to peak in bloom right around that June, July time, which, of course, is summer when a lot of tourists come out here are expecting a great vacation. We actually caught up with one couple already here hoping to celebrate a 60th birthday. And, well, let's just say the vacation not going as planned. Listen. I mean, it's like 75 yards of seaweed out before you even hit clear water. And it's a shame because the Keys, I mean, we came down here. We both have never been here before. Been here before I grew yeah. up in Florida. And I mean, we, this is this is not what we expected to see when we came in here. This much it's seaweed. A big and listen, while we were driving down here from Miami all the way down to Key West, you could see those patches throughout that uh, about three-hour drive down. So it's not just Key West. expected to really impact the East Coast and not just folks who are out hoping to get a, a nice swim out in the beach. Also fishermen saying, look, we love this stuff because right. it brings in the fish and can make for a good catch. But it can also have an impact on the boats if they get stuck in this stuff out there. Probably. Yeah, of course. I wish I could smell it or maybe I don't. I wish I could smell it through Ooh. the TV. No, 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 you don't. Nope. <laughs> Thank you for smelling it for us <laughs> and for that reporting. We'll see you soon. <laughs> yeah, I'll pass on that one. Uh, also this morning, disease detectives with the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, are investigating a cluster of these rare but serious brain abscesses that are happening in children in and around the Las Vegas area. In 2022, last year, the number of brain abscesses in kids tripled in Nevada, rising from an average of four to five a year to 18. The good news is that none of those patients died, but doctors from other parts of the country say they may also be seeing a similar rise in cases. Joining us now is the doctor who noticed this pattern, pattern in Southern Nevada, Dr. Taryn Bragg. She's an associate professor at the University of Utah and pediatric neurosurgeon at Intermountain Health at Sunrise Children's Hospital in Nevada. And doctor, we're so grateful for your time this morning and the fact that you were the one who noticed this and actually alerted public health authorities. What did you see? What were you seeing? And what did you tell them? Well, yes, good morning. Um, I started noticing in late March uh, a significant rise in patients presenting to the emergency room with high fevers and um, altered mental status and weakness. And those patients were diagnosed with brain abscesses. We saw approximately um, 11 cases in the first four months, uh, which is what prompted um, my communication with the CDC. And so what did the CDC say when you reached out? Had they been hearing it from other, uh, other pediatricians? What was the concern there? 
So the CDC had investigated in 2021 and early 2022 and determined that the rates that were um, nationally noted were consistent with prior fluctuations. However, um, I had urged them to reconsider uh, continued surveillance throughout 2022 and 2023 as our numbers were significantly higher than expected. And you haven't seen as many cases this year in 2023. Does that mean that there's a link to the pandemic? What's your sense of that? So we're hoping that, you know, whatever the cause, we're not quite certain what that cause of why we're seeing an increase in infections, but we're hoping that the seasonal fluctuations go back to baseline. And that's certainly what I've seen here in Southern Nevada. I think this is so alarming for any parent who's watching this. They want to know, you know, what should they be be looking out for in their children if there is something similar happening? So the patients that presented were significantly ill at the time uh, that they came to the emergency room. So this is very different than a common cold. But things that they could look for would be persistently high fevers, um, perhaps um, persistent drainage from the nose, puffiness in the face or eyes, and um, anything that was not responding to normal course or short course of treatment um, should be bring uh, parents to their pediatricians or their local emergency room. Yeah. Okay. That's really good advice. Dr. Taryn Bragg, again, one of the first uh, officials to spot this and alert public health authorities. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. In the final weeks as Chicago's mayor, Lori Lightfoot has quite a message for her party. Listen. As Democrats, if we do not speak the truth about violent crime in our city, we will be the worst for it. She's going to talk with us about that. A lot more. What's ahead? Mayor Lightfoot is in studio. As Democrats, if we do not speak the truth about violent crime in our city, we will be the worst for it. The police department is spending all this time and resources to arrest, put a case on, and then the judges and the prosecutors say, you know what, we're going to let you out on electronic monitoring to wreak havoc again. That warning from outgoing Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, a warning to her own party to get tough on crime. And while she didn't use the words cash bail, it's pretty clear what she was talking about. She, of course, is a former prosecutor and Democrats are acting on that message. Some of them last week, New York Governor Kathy Hochul announced judges will have more authority to set bail and detain dangerous defendants. This move comes after New York Democrats in the midterms were hit hard on violent crime and faced calls for the state to change the bail reform laws. For Lightfoot, Chicago's first black woman mayor and its first openly gay mayor, she lost her bid for re-election in February in a race where the city's high crime rate was largely in focus. Her final days in office are now. She's done in two weeks, and we're really happy to have her in studio this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Happy to be here. So you got two weeks left yes. as we we're going to get into sort of your experience, but just your thoughts on what New York has done, because that was listening to the advice that you gave. Well, look, I think the thing that's been challenging in these conversations around criminal justice reform, police reform is the voices of the victims have been lost. And my point is that as Democrats, we've got to straddle those various divides. But importantly, if we put victims 
uh, voices front and center in any discussions about public safety, we will be the winners because it's the victims, the people in the neighborhoods, the people on the block that are affected every single day by violent dangers and habitual offenders that are wreaking havoc. And we can't coddle those kinds of people. We've got to be tough on them. Let me present the other side of this argument mm-hmm. to you, someone who disagrees, for example, with what New York has just done here, changing its cash bail mm-hmm. reform laws, giving judges more power. That's a family of Khalif Browder. You obviously know who Khalif Browder is. But to remind our viewers, he spent three years at Rikers Island for stealing a backpack because his mm-hmm. family couldn't afford $3,000 to get him out on bail. And they, he ultimately took his own life. And they decry changes like this. What do you say to them? Well, look, I don't think anybody, and certainly not Democrats, believe that local jails should be debtor's prisons for people who just can't afford to pay a modest cast bail. That's not what this has to be about. It's got to be about making sure that judges are asking the question when a defendant comes in front of them, are they a frightless or are they a danger to the community? And what's gotten lost in those discussions is the danger to the community element. We fought hard in Illinois to put that back into yeah. our state laws so that our communities could be safe. But let me ask you about what the Chicago Tribune wrote after the day you lost the election. Mm-hmm. Lightfoot struggled through a storm of skyrocketing crime, the COVID-19 pandemic, and a series of personality conflicts that left her labeled as a divisive leader mm-hmm. who was unable to build political coalitions. I, I would assume you take a little bit of issue with that. So I, I, t- I take a lot of issue so with that. So tell Here, us. Here's the thing. Oftentimes in the narrative, uh, the focus on women in particular, black women, is about our personalities and how we govern, how we present ourselves. What I would say to you and challenge anybody who says, well, she was so divisive, she couldn't lead. How do we close budget deficits two years in a row? How did we build and restitch together the social safety net with historic amount of $1.2 billion in investment? How did we push $2.2 billion into areas of our community that haven't seen a dime of investment in decades? When you look at the body of work and what we were able to accomplish in coalition with local elected officials, with local stakeholders, this nonsense around well, she was mean and she wasn't nice. It's just crazy. And frankly, you know this. Every woman in leadership, every woman who dares to say, I have something to say, I want to lead, I want to contribute back, faces the same thing. And we've got to just put that to the side and look at the facts and the substance of what has been accomplished. One of the things that I found really interesting that you've been saying in these sort of final weeks in office is you talk about something you describe as an anger bubble. Yeah. And you talk about not being able to break through an anger bubble. What is that? Look, I think People are angry, they're frustrated, they're fearful, because COVID-19 really pulled the rug out from everybody and upended our assumptions about what our daily life was going to be. The future's still not clear, and so a lot of people have manifested that anxiety as anger. And I think for any elected official, at every level, we've got to break through that. We've got to demonstrate to people why they should have confidence in us, but importantly, what we've done to change their lives. I'm the first wave of mayors coming through COVID that's run for re-election. And I'm talking to my fellow mayors all across the country to let them know about my experience, yeah. but to say, you got to take on this challenge. You talk about taking on, you, uh, you, got, you really mm-hmm. went head to head with the teachers union in yes. Chicago. Um, and now we're starting to see the evidence. I'm seeing it as a parent. I, 
we are seeing the data come out about the learning loss from these schools being shut for so long. Um, The union called conditions for in-person schooling for a long time in Chicago unsafe, right? They were representing Mm -hmm. teachers. It didn't Mm -hmm. feel safe. You disagreed. Wasn't the union just doing its job and advocating for teachers that didn't feel safe? Or do you think that their moves harmed our children? Look, obviously, every union should advocate for its members, but it's got to be in the context of an organization. Schools are about children. We demonstrated over and over again that our schools were safe. We put $100 million into retrofitting classrooms, making sure that they had the PPE, making sure that every single classroom had filters um, to make sure that the air was safe, deep cleaning of every single building. But fundamentally, we know that where children learn the best and where they are safest is in the classroom and in-person learning. And none of our parents signed up to be homeschoolers. And the learning loss is real. We're making big steps in that direction. But the union needed to work with us, and they never did But here's did what Randy Weingarten, who heads that union, said. Let's play it. We spent every day from February on trying to get schools open. We knew that remote education was not a substitute for opening schools. The former uh, education secretary, Betsy DeVos, responded to that, um, accusing her of revisionist history. You agree with DeVos? Well, what I will say is this. That may have been what Randy Weingartner was saying at the national level, and I believe that to be true. I had conversations with her at the time that lead me to believe that that's what she wanted to do. That's not the reality that was happening on the ground in cities like Chicago, like Los Angeles, and other places. We needed to get our kids back in school, and I'm unapologetic about the fight to make sure that we put our kids and our parents first. Quickly, advice to your successor, Brandon Johnson, takes over May 15th. Be humble, listen, and rise above the fray and be the mayor for the entire city. Mayor Lightfoot, thank you. And thanks for the work you did for Chicago. Pleasure. Stay with us, okay? We're going to have a broader conversation. We're going to get you to the table, talk about the letter you recently sent to Governor Greg Abbott, asking him to stop sending migrants to Chicago. A lot more with you and Adam Kinzinger. Ahead, Caitlin. Yeah, we do have more on that. Also, the other top headlines this morning is more than 200 law enforcement officers are now involved in the search for that gunman accused of killing five people, his neighbors, including a nine-year-old boy. We have the latest in the search ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The numbers are getting worse. The agents are beyond an exhausting point. And it's not just at the border. Now what you're seeing is places 100, 150 miles from the border are just as overwhelmed as if they were on the Rio Grande themselves. That's Texas Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez describing a describing a worsening situation at the border as Title 42 is set to expire next week. That's that COVID era policy that allowed the border authorities to quickly expel certain migrants. Gonzalez's comments come as Chicago's outgoing mayor, Lori Lightfoot, who you just heard from, is now urging Texas Governor Greg Abbott to stop sending busloads of migrants to her city of Chicago. Lightfoot yesterday wrote in a letter to him saying, quote, your lack of consideration or coordination in an attempt to cause chaos and score political points has resulted in a critical tipping point in our ability to receive individuals and families in a safe, orderly and dignified way. 
Mayor Lightfoot is back here at the table with us. Also joining our conversation on immigration and other key issues, CNN senior political commentator and former Republican congressman from Illinois, Adam Kenzinger. Thank you both. Uh, two questions for you on, on this letter. One, have you heard anything? No, from we had not heard anything back. And frankly, I didn't expect to hear anything back, but I felt like it was important to once again try to engage the governor but also let him know what his policies and practices are doing in cities like Chicago. We are completely tapped out. We have no more space, no more resources. And frankly, we're already in a surge. We've been seeing over the last week, two to three, 200 plus people coming to Chicago every single day. We call them walk-ins because they're not coming on buses, but they are coming on planes from San Antonio. And we're very concerned because they don't seem like they're getting screened at the border. We've seen people coming with serious medical issues. Well, I imagine his response, though, would be a defense of what they're doing. Obviously, he's continued to do this. And what he, Governor Abbott has said in the past is that this is a way for other states and other cities to see what Texas and Arizona deal with, saying that they are bearing the brunt of this issue, and they're basically just showing other people what it's like. But what's getting lost in what the governor is doing is the fact that these are human beings. In any other emergency, you would be coordinating, you'd be collaborating, you'd be talking about specifically what the needs of the people are. We've seen people come off of these buses that he has sent who are victims of sexual assault, um, who have serious medical conditions that can't be dealt with by the paramedics that we have on site. They've got to be rushed to the hospital. Women who are in such an advanced stage of labor, they literally get off the bus and give birth within one of our facilities. That doesn't make any sense. So if we don't put the humanity of these migrants front and center, I understand and I'm solely compassionate to the fact that the borders are themselves really overrun, but you don't solve that problem by simply sticking people on buses to a city that they didn't ask to come to for an uncertain future and now where we are literally full. Congressman, the only solution, actually, lasting solution to this problem is from your former employer. It's Congress. It's the only, you know, yeah. executive orders get challenged in the courts. Look at look at DACA continues to be challenged, et cetera. Do, you've got mayors pleading for help. New York City, same same thing from Mayor Adams. Congress going to do anything? Yeah, no, because no. this is yeah, the no. easiest. Yeah, no, no, right? Right, no is the answer. Because this is the, actually the easiest thing to solve. I mean, I, I can give you an 80% issue, which is serious border security. Take care of the folks that are here illegally. Give them a pathway at the back of the line to citizenship or legalization. And you can go down that, pay a fine. And 80% of Americans say that's a good solution. The problem is Republicans hold on to border security. Democrats hold on to the issue of those that are here illegally. And nothing gets done. I have worked the border as a member of the National Guard. And I'll tell you, the human trafficking issue on the border is very serious. We find pe we find bodies in the desert in Arizona. We'd find young girls that have been raped by coyotes bringing them over. This is a this is a human issue. And I agree with the mayor on you cannot just start shipping people around the country to make political points. Yes, Texas and Arizona have a huge problem and they need extra resources to deal with it, but you don't deal with it by further dividing this country on the issue of immigration. And that's what frankly people like Governor Abbott are trying to do. Title 42 is set to expire, though, and there are major questions for the administration on how they're prepared to handle this. We've seen them out talking about it from Secretary Mayorkas, Secretary Blinken. Uh, what's your sense of whether or not the Biden administration is prepared to handle Title 42 going Look, away? I know that they are focused on this issue. They've been focused on it for months and months and months. But the reality is in the cities is that we are already seeing the surge. And we need immediate federal help. 
Two things. One, we need FEMA to issue the monies that the Congress has already appropriated to them. We got $5.5 million last fall. We've not seen a nickel yet this year. There are two programs that Congress set up. FEMA needs to speed up. Why aren't you um, getting that money? We have no idea. We have been talking, talking, talking. We need FEMA to step up and do the right thing. The other thing is we need work permits for these people that are coming in. If they're here in a country legally, they should be able to work. I could put every single able-bodied adult in my city to work yesterday if they had legal work permits. I mean, there's like 10 million open jobs. We've seen the real impact of labor shortages across across sectors. I want to change the topic to abortion and your perspective on how your party, the Republican Party, is handling these questions about abortion now. It is what every presidential candidate in your party needs to answer. And these answers have been sort of all over the map. Is it a winning issue for them? They've already got Dobbs overturning Roe versus Wade. Yeah, it's not. So here's the how abortion politics worked up until Dobbs was overturned, which was the the pro-choice group group wasn't really super motivated because, you know, to them, it was always going to be legal. It's not the thing that drives you to right. the polls. Pro-life was. Now that that has switched, you see the pro-choice crowd being driven to the polls and the pro-life crowd is unable to have a, a coherent message here. I say, as a pro-lifer myself, I say, look, we should move to a position of, of promoting a culture of life. How do we encourage adoption in this country? How do we make sure that those that you know are, are, are born in, a, in an unwanted environment can be adopted? And also, let's be realistic about things like rape, incest, life, health of the mother, and let's set a reasonable time frame, not at six weeks for abortion, something a little further down the line, And I think that could have been a big win, frankly, for the pro-life movement. And the pro-choice movement probably wouldn't agree with all of it, but it wouldn't be as cruel as what you're seeing out of my party now. And it's going to be bad politics. I want your perspective on this, but quickly, was it a mistake for DeSantis to sign that six-week bill? Oh, I think so. I think so. Yeah. He hasn't been talking about it very much. What do you make of what's happening? Because look at what's happening in Nebraska, South Carolina, where these state legislatures are are coming up with really strict things. But you're seeing... In certain states, we're seeing a lawmaker, an 80-year-old man, who was saying he thought it was way too soon when it came to six weeks because a lot of people don't even know they're pregnant by then. Look, I think the Republican Party is going to rue the day um, that they launched onto this and these draconian laws that are being passed in state legislature, um, particularly across the South, I think that this is not only going to become a social issue motivating um, pro-choice women, but it's going to be an economic issue. We're already seeing companies saying we are not going to stay in states that don't respect women. And frankly, states like Illinois, cities like Chicago, we're going to welcome those people. This is a value statement issue that I think is going to animate the discussion, not only in the next election cycle, but for years to come, where companies are making decisions about where they go. Kids are making decisions about where they go to college on the basis of what is the state's practices, particularly when it comes to respecting bodily autonomy of women. That's what, is there a company that has called you? There, I, don't, I won't name them by name, but yes, absolutely. We're out there aggressively mm-hmm. pursuing those companies. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it is something that is going to be an issue going forward. Obviously, we've been talking about it with every 2024 hopeful. Thank you both for joining us. Thank that was you. a, a really Appreciate robust you. discussion. Enjoy Thank you. a little break, okay? I will. After <laughs> two weeks from now. I love Thanks. it. Exactly. All right. And CNN This Morning continues right now. That's what we need from the public is any type of information, because right now we're we're just uh, we're running into dead ends. Do you all believe that the suspect is still in the area? We do not know. Like I said, we have right now we have zero leads. 
Very scary answer. Good morning, everyone. We do begin there. The FBI asking the public for help this morning as a manhunt continues for a gunman accused of killing five neighbors, including a nine-year-old boy in Texas. We're also going to take you live to Paris this morning as nationwide protests are sweeping France. It is the country's Labor Day as unions are rallying around the government's decision to raise that retirement age from 62 to 64. And breaking overnight, First Republic Bank has become the third major bank to fail since just March. We're waiting to see how Wall Street reacts when the markets open. CNN This Morning starts right now. We do begin in Texas this morning. Authorities there offering $80,000 in reward money for information on the gunman accused of killing five people, including just a nine-year-old boy. More than 200 officers searching right now for Francisco Oropesa. They say he's armed and dangerous. Right now, they don't have any leads. They're running into dead ends. They can't find him now. One man whose wife and son were both killed is speaking out. That was my nine-year-old son and my wife, too. And two people who died protecting my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. My one-and-a-half-month-old son was protected with a lot of clothes so the killer wouldn't kill him, too. Unimaginable grief. So let's go to Ed Lavender. He's live in Cleveland, Texas. With more no answers for grieving parents. No, that was uh, excruciating to watch uh, Wilson Garcia describe that to us yesterday uh, afternoon, that scene. This is the, the driveway that leads up to the suspect's house, the, uh, the house where the, uh, the, the families were gathered on Friday night is the one you see there uh, in the distance. But right now the focus is on this manhunt for 38-year-old uh, Francisco Oropesa. As you heard there in the lead-in, uh, FBI officials saying that at this point they have no lead. There has, is a collection of reward money that is now being offered in the hopes that that will generate some sort of leads, $80,000 in all, but we still have not heard any updates if that reward announcement has generated any possible leads. Investigators say at this point, uh, they believe the suspect could be anywhere. They lost uh, his track on him Saturday night where they found clothes and the cell phone that he had been using. Investigators say they believe he, ha he had been communicating with some friends, but that didn't uh, lead them to his whereabouts. Yesterday, as the, the governor of Texas was announcing uh, this reward money, uh, he went out of his way to describe the five victims as illegal immigrants. Uh, that has forced the governor uh, to be under you know, some pretty intense criticism for using that kind of language in this kind of tragic situation. And the sheriff here in San Jacinto County says he doesn't care what the immigration status is of the victims. He's just incredibly uh, hurt by what has happened here. Um, my heart is with this eight-year-old little boy. I don't, I don't care if he was here legally. I don't care if he was here illegally. He was in my county. Five people died in my county, and that is where my heart is, in my county, protecting my people to the best of our ability. 
Yeah, so more than uh, 200 law enforcement officers in this area conducting this search, which has now gone uh, beyond 48 hours, uh, Poppy. Uh, investigators are hoping that this reward mo money starts to generate some leads as to uh, where he might be. But uh, it is still stunning to see that uh, after this amount of time that there still doesn't be any clear picture on where he might be at this point. And they believe he's armed and dangerous. So, you know, people are all on edge. Ed, thank you for the, for the reporting. It's a tragic story. Also on the international front, another round of protests are underway this morning in France. They are largely over that controversial pension reform that was signed into law three weeks ago by the French president. It raised the retirement age from 62 to 64. CNN correspondent Melissa Bell is live in Paris. Melissa, we're checking in with you last hour. Clearly, the number of people behind you has grown. What are you seeing? That's right. And what we're seeing is a very diverse group of people, Caitlin, because they've come out here to protest today for a number of different reasons, not just the pension reform that we've seen at the heart of so many of those protests over the course of the last few weeks. But out here, uh, there are people representing specific causes, Kurds, for instance, uh, other people from around the world representing their causes, a lot of uh, uh, people uh, fighting for uh, against climate change. Of course, at the heart of this is very much an anti-capitalist feel. That's what you'll see. It's the 1st of May traditionally a day of protest for the left across Europe. What authorities here in France expect today, Caitlin, is that this is likely to be one of the biggest 1st of May protests that they've seen simply because of what we've been covering here for the last few weeks, those pension reform protests. The latest on that, of course, is that that raising of the retirement age from 62 to 64 is going ahead. It is going to become law. But that has already dimmed the enthusiasm of the unions for coming out on the street and continuing to cause as much trouble as they can. And that's what's going to be at the heart of these protests again today. Authorities say they expect about 500 to 6,000 people out on the streets. The unions are hoping for much more than that. There are, Caitlin, 12,000 police officers out on the streets to try and keep things in order because authorities fear that once again we're going to see violence. What they say is that they figure there are about 1,000 to 2,000 people determined on causing violence today. Okay. We'll keep an eye on it. Melissa Bell in Paris, thank you. Breaking this morning, First Republic Bank has failed. It has become the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. Regulators have seized the bank and structured a rescue deal with J.P. Morgan Chase to buy most of its assets for $10.6 billion. In a statement, J.P. Morgan Chase's CEO, Jamie Dimon, says our government invited us and others to step up, and we did. First Republic is now the third major bank to fail since just March as America's banking crisis flares again. We're keeping a close eye on the markets ahead of the open here. Our chief business correspondent, Christy Normans, is with us. And you were just on the call yeah. that J.P. Morgan had uh, that began just a few minutes ago. What do we need to know? Well, Jamie Dimon is saying to the reporters on that call that this helps stabilize the system, and that's a good thing. You know, J.P. Morgan coming in and buying this, um, basically buying this bank out of receivership. The FDIC, the federal government, had to go in and take it over this weekend. Um, and so... What will happen here next is anybody who is a customer of First Republic can go to your bank today. You can do your banking digitally online, however you normally do it. But it is a J.P. Morgan uh, property now. And they're going to try to uh, they're going to try to integrate this property with their wealth management division. So it's got some valuable, uh, you know, val this is a, a bank. First Republic was a bank that you saw the stock just collapse over the past uh, few weeks. But it's a bank that caters to wealthier clientele on both coasts. They'll fold that into uh, J.P. Morgan's wealth management division. And about job losses, um, the CFO of the company, of, J of, of uh, J.P. Morgan, saying, look, they hire 10,000 10, people every year at, <laughs> at J.P. Morgan. So they're hoping that there'll be opportunities for a lot of those people people who work at uh, First Republic. Did he say anything else on the call? 
they, they just got started. Like, basically, they're talking about what it means for um, that there were a lot of bidders over the weekend, you know, so that the government took the bank into receivership and there were a lot of interested parties and that it will be... Um, it will add to their earnings. J.P. Morgan says it'll add a little bit to their earnings right away. You know, they'll have to take $2 billion in restructuring costs and the like. But it's just putting to bed what was a weak point in the in the banking system. And, you know, it's unclear if there will be more bank failures or more bank stress. The Fed is likely to raise interest rates again this this week, guys. Remember, it was it's higher interest rates that sort of revealed some of the problems for so many of these banks. So um, I think that a lot of people are breathing a sigh of relief. There was one interesting question about the $30 billion that uh, the 11 big banks injected into First Republic. And the question was, why did that not work? And the CFO said it did work. It bought a lot of time and uh, it allowed this bank to stay afloat while a, a different a different option was found, which is, of course, taking into receivership and, and selling it to uh, J.P. Morgan. We'll let you get back on that yeah. call and finish your reporting, <laughs> Christine Romans. Thank you very much. Yeah, we want to continue to talk about this, though. So let's bring in former Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy at the Treasury Department, Ben Harris, who was also the chief economist to Joe Biden when he was vice president. So a great person to talk with about this morning because we know Treasury officials have been in touch with regulators about this, about what this was going to look like. And what's your sense of what happens now? Because I was talking to a top House Republican who said they basically saw this as unfinished business from SVB. Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. I mean, you know, here we are, 8 a.m. Eastern this morning, and there's a lot to digest with this deal, but I think there's sort of two key takeaways. The first is that the resolution was largely what markets expected. I mean, we didn't know there would be J.P. Morgan buying, but there were a lot of bidders, and eventually we got a a very well-established bank, obviously, uh, taking the bank over from the FDIC, which is exactly how the system's supposed to work. And the second point is that this really feels... Uh, and this could obviously change, but it really feels like the stress is unique to these three banks that have have failed. And it doesn't look, here we are, you know, the first day of May, it doesn't look like this will seep out into the rest of the financial system. Uh, so it does look like everything's pretty pretty strong as of today. But Ben, let me ask you this. I thought it was interesting that Rokana, obviously Congressman from California, you now have two California-based banks that have failed since March, um, said yesterday morning, that, look, the reality is in our economy, you have $8 trillion in uninsured deposits, meaning they're above that $250,000 FDIC insured threshold. And he said, until we get, we, until we guarantee those deposits, you run the risk of more bank failures. Do you think he has a point? So I think that, you know, if you read the, the report that Michael Barr released last yeah, I week, did. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's clear that that not everything's working the way it's supposed to. There was breakdown in supervision. There was breakdown, obviously, in management by these banks, which were uh, you know, not taking uh, the best action when it came to rising interest rates. The specific question you're talking about as far as what to do about uninsured deposits is a really interesting policy uh, uh, question right now. You know, I do think that Congress will probably revisit that question over time. You know, they may raise the cap. They may ensure... Uh, a, a portion of deposits uh, well above that up to some some limit. But that's something which we worked out over time. And this particular Congress really doesn't feel like it's going to come together with any sort of fundamental reform of the financial system anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, Gary Cohen said doing unlimited insurance with FDIC would be a race to the bottom with, right. with no discipline. I think the other question for what Congress is going to do here is what this looks like with J.P. Morgan. I mean, it's the nation's biggest bank. They just got bigger with this. Is this going to increase scrutiny from progressives in your view? 
Yeah, I mean, progressives, you know, if you spend any time on Twitter, progressives are already unhappy about the size of J.P. Morgan. Look, I think you had to put out this fire right away, and it does feel like a very reasonable resolution to me. Uh, but I think that those that are concerned about concentration in the financial sector, concentration in banks, are going to take a hard look uh, at what happened this morning and, and probably criticize it. All right, Ben Harris, thanks so much for that perspective on this. Thank you. All right, this just in former President Trump asking the judge to declare a mistrial in the civil battery and defamation trial that he's facing from E. Jean Carroll. Trump claims the judge made a, quote, pervasive, unfair, and prejudicial, and prejudicial, I should say, ruling. He's talking about previous rulings against him. Defense attorney Joe Tacopina said the judge has mischaracterized facts of the case and improperly shut down certain lines of questioning. It would be unusual, we should note, for the judge to declare a mistrial based on his own statements. E. Jean Carroll is suing Trump, alleging that he raped her in a department store in the mid-90s and then defamed her when he kept repeatedly denying her claim. Trump has denied any wrongdoing. We will keep you posted on where this goes. Also, soon, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is going to address Israel's parliament. It's his first trip abroad as Speaker. He made... Uh, Something the White House is going to be responding to today. A comment will show you what he said, and we're live in Jerusalem next. Despite no evidence, some Republicans, like the MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell, still peddling the lie that the 2020 and 2022 elections were stolen. Carrie Lake, Mark Pincham, Jim Mershon, Christina Caramo, Matt DiPerno, Tudor Dixon, Blake Matthews. They all lost. No, all of them won. No, they didn't. Uh, Seth Herndon (laughs) is the other voice you heard there. He talked to Lindell for three hours. He's going to join us next on this. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Conspiracy theories, particularly about the result of the 2020 and 2022 elections, are still quite popular in certain corners of the Republican Party. Listen to my pillow CEO, Mike Lindell, insist, despite having no evidence that the election was stolen. Carrie Lake, Mark Fincham, Jim Mershon, Christina Caramo, Matt DiPerno, Tudor Dixon, Blake Matt. They all lost. All of, no, all of them won. They were, every one of them was stole with computers. And we can show you that. The majority of Americans believe the 2020 election was not stolen. The machines were not the problem. The majority of Americans find that. Well, who's your, where do you find this fact? Who gives you the this is, this No, is, who gives you them? Well, where are you getting your the, facts? Can I get, that because is, that don't is, spew a lie. That's not a lie. Not truth. It's a fact. Joining us now is that other voice you heard, New York Times reporter conducting the interview with Lindell Estet Herndon. He's a CNN political analyst, national politics reporter at the New York Times. I'm where to begin. Yeah. What was most illuminating? What did that tell you? I mean, I um, we really started this process because of how we started our podcast. We were were originally at Dana Point in the RNC, and we saw Ronna McDaniel really come on and really embrace Mike Lindell. And he kept popping, the chairwoman of the RNC, and he kept popping up at all these different Republican events. And he was doing so not only with a horde of fans around him, but continuing to push that election conspiracy, not just the denying the results, but actually acting as if voting machines had been co-opted by globalists, by the CCP, others. He popped up in that defamation lawsuit uh, again 
ESPN's Fox News. And this is someone who has ingrained power throughout his own business, throughout his own fame. And I'm using that in terms of advertising in Fox. We wanted to push him on that. We knew his beliefs, but how was he using those beliefs to really spread that conspiracy? Because as we know, election denial was a losing issue for Republicans in the midterms. It was an issue they were supposed to be moving on from looking ahead to 2024. But that cannot be possible as the chairwoman of the RNC was bringing Lindell on. And he's someone who knows that he needs that credibility. In the interview, the thing that stuck out the most to me was that he was very consciously using his fame, using his money to gain credibility from the establishment corners of the Republican Party. And he knew that would ingrain his conspiracy even further. This was an active effort for him, not a passive one. Okay, but you spent three hours <laughs> with him. Did you expect this to be a three-hour interview when you went into this? No, we expected it to be 45 minutes. We had a script of questions, but the way that he talks, infusing every portion of his life, infusing every mention of his book, infusing, we're going back to those conspiracies over and over to get those answers. It required that amount of time because you have to basically... How did you finally wrap it up? It's like, we have to, like, We actually ended up wrapping it up with a couple of... He told us all, nearly everything. He told us stories about Prince in Minnesota. He told us kind of all of these fabulous stories about his life. But we wanted to sift through that noise because it's still someone who's really using that power to do something that is down to dangerous to democracy. This is not something that I think people should really dismiss as a past issue. This is something that has taken on new life in the Republican Party. And that's because even among the base, there's a sense that they that, that this grievance is a valid one, that the election is another piece of the kind of culture war that has been stolen from them, and that that's what he is really playing on. And so that's what I thought was really important. It was also important for us to pair it with talking to the GOP chairwoman after that, to come to Ronna McDaniel and say, yeah, okay, like, you know, yeah. Mike Lindell is saying this, and she was not stepping away what from that. What was she saying But for people who haven't listened yet? No problem. I mean, she was saying that really that the Mike Lindell has a place in the Republican Party. She said that she did not... Um, she did not agree fully with his conspiracy, but she also did not fully deny fraud claims either. This is someone who did not take the opportunity to step away from Lindell when we were doing that interview. And we were really talking to and her. And he challenged her for her job. And he challenged her for her job. This just speaks to the level of, of that, that conspiracy is ingrained in him as a figure is ingrained to the party. We were doing it to try to show the codependent relationship between the grassroots version of Republicans and the establishment. They need each other right now. And they both know that. And so you both had Lindell seeking out for to Ronna McDaniel to give him some credibility. But you also have Ronna McDaniel who knows that she needs the people who like Mike Lindell and was not willing to step away from them. They're, they're hand in hand right now, even though uh, they're trying to move on from the most explicit versions of his, his conspiracy. I want to hear the Prince story in the commercial. Yeah. <laughs> Thank and you. Estelle. On top of all of this, we should know he's been ordered to pay $5 million yeah. because he said someone couldn't prove him wrong on election fraud and the person proved him wrong. And now he's saying he won't pay. Absolutely. Very consistent with him. None of the facts actually matter here. This is someone who is trying to push those type of conspiracies. Thank I said, Thank three you. hours. Wow. <laughs> I want the uncut version. Do you? Do Send you? <laughs> I don't know. All right, Asit, thank you so much. Thank you. Also, tracking this nationally, over the last four years, there's been a decline in high school graduates who are deciding to go to college. It's a new trend. Harry Enten crunched the numbers. He's here in a moment with that analysis. And Willie Nelson celebrating his 90th birthday in style, singing the classic Roll Me Up with Snoop Dogg. How fitting.
New this morning, a U.S. Navy ship has now safely evacuated 100 Americans from war-torn Sudan. You can see some of the images here to Saudi Arabia. Over the weekend, the U.S. government launched two convoys of buses to get citizens out of the country amid concerns about their safety. The New York Times is reporting this morning that armed American drones flew overhead and guarded the convoys as they made that 525-mile journey to the Red Sea. CNN's international correspondent Larry Majowo is at the seaport in Jeddah where Americans are, are being processed. Larry, you've been doing great work covering this all weekend. What are you seeing and what are you hearing about this journey and just how dangerous it was? We're seeing the final stages of what happens when the Americans get over here to the port of Jeddah and then they are processed. So many of them already had their passports stamped here at the Jeddah Islamic port. They were received by a big U.S. embassy team here, including the consul general, and they make sure that they are taken care of. If anybody's sick, needs medical attention, they have that. And there were 105 American citizens on that ship, but there's more because some of them are legal permanent residents. The U.S. naval ship, Bronze is the first U.S. military ship to do this trip across the Red Sea. There's likely going to be more because there are still Americans who are in Sudan waiting for a way to get out of there. And I met this one family that talks about the difficulty of living through a war zone with little kids. Watch. feel like is that thunder or something right. and after like the first week of the shooting he starts to recognize okay moment <laughs> you take that and i'll use this yes aren't you grateful though that they're so young that they know they don't fully understand what's going on yes it's like it's, it was hard for them because till now when they hear any sound mustafa keep asking me is that shooting mm -hmm. is there any bomb we have to go under the bed or, or corridor like that i was feeling so sorry about them for that there are so many kids that have been through this, and that's the innocence, right? I see this little kid over there just kind of moving around with a suitcase and enjoying that moment. The innocence of it all. It's a dangerous journey. The journey from Port Sudan to Jeddah. We did this over the weekend with the Saudi Navy to Port Sudan and back. It's 10 to 12 hours, so it's not easy. They get seasick. They get bored. Sometimes they don't even have any entertainment, and yet that's the only way out, of, out to safety. I know. It's just, it is amazing to see these little kids. Larry, you should have let him keep your mic flag as he was playing with it there while you were talking to his mother. That was so cute. <laughs> All right, Larry Doe, you've been doing great work, though, so thank you. Well, today, May 1st, marks National College Decision Day, and the pressure is on for high school seniors to confirm their enrollment with their school of choice. Some new data out, though, finds that over the last few years, undergrad uh, college enrollment has actually dropped nationwide. Our senior data reporter, Harry Anton, is here with this morning's number. Is it because it is so darn expensive? I, I think that certainly has something to do with it, people trying to save money. And let's just sort of get into this, okay? New high school grads going to college. It's down four points from 66% for new high school grads in 2019 to 62% for new high school grads in 2022. But it's very interesting when you look at the split of exactly what's going on here. So this is the new high school grads going to a four-year college. That has stayed mostly steady from 2019 to 2022. New high school grads, 45% of them are going to a four-year college in 2022. There was some dip during the COVID pandemic, but it's come back up. Where it has not come back up, though, is two-year colleges. Back in 2019, 22% of new high school grads are going to two-year colleges. Now that is just 17% that are going to two-year colleges. And this is part of a long trend line, Poppy. Back in 2012, 29% of new high school grads were going to two-year colleges to just 17% now. Why? 
because of a constant strong job market that mm. makes that degree less desirable. I also wonder how ChatGPT and everything changes all, all of this when like your whole job and everything is going to change. There are places where we're seeing an increase in enrollment, though. We are. So trade schools, yeah. trade schools. Look at this. The change from 2021 to 2022 up 19 percent in construction, culinary up 13 percent, mechanics up 12 percent. But on the other end. Right. So this is about getting more money. Right. You want to get more money. You enter these professions also about getting more money. Look at the Ivy League acceptance rates. Look at this. Across the five schools that released the data, in 2020, the acceptance rate was 6.6%. Look at 2023, now just 4.6%. So it's interesting, right? You've got the trade schools on one end and the Ivy League schools on the other, which are both becoming more desirable. A lot of thoughts on there. are so many great colleges out there. It's there about are. what you do It's what with you do the with the degree. That's exactly right. My mother went to city and state schools, and she made a great life for herself. I hope my husband is listening. He agrees. <laughs> All right, Harry. Thank you. Thank Caitlin. you. I'm sure he is. The Super Mario's brother has just become the 10th animated movie to make a billion dollars globally. But the success comes as another Hollywood writer's strike is looming potentially. We're going to speak to the executive producer and director of HBO's latest miniseries, which is out today, The White House Plumbers, for his perspective on that and how the show has parallels to what's happening today next. Clock is ticking, trying to avoid a Hollywood writer strike for the first time since 2007 in an industry increasingly dominated by streaming. Writers are demanding changes to the way that they're compensated. If a labor deal is not reached by tonight before midnight, nearly 98 percent of the Writers Guild union members have voted to go on strike. That would bring production on film and television shows to a standstill. Let's talk about that and a whole lot more about his new show, White House Plumbers, premiering today on HBO and HBO Max is the show's executive producer and director, David Mandel. Dave, great to have you. Good morning. Uh, the show is phenomenal. We had Judy Greer on a few weeks ago. Uh, oh, I've loved what I've seen of it in the, the sneak clips I got. Um, but let's start on the writer's strike. Is it going to happen? And if it does, what does it mean? Um, I unfortunately think it's going to happen. I am part of the 98% that voted for it. I'm the director of White House Plumbers, but I'm a writer during the rest of my time uh, in life. And uh, it just, unfortunately, we have a situation where too many writers, certainly that I know, my contemporaries, guys in their 50s, women in their 50s, mm -hmm. who all of a sudden, even though this is supposed to be peak television, are not making a living, like are worrying about like how they're going to like pay their mortgage and stuff. And that just seems insane. And unfortunately, I didn't tell these big companies who are crying poverty to make some of these deals they did to go all in on streaming. That I was not consulted on that. Huh. So I'm not quite sure why writers should pay for it. So anyway, I think unfortunately it's going to happen. Mm. That's news. You say you do think it's going to happen. We'll continue to track that. And of course, what is at stake there? We also want to talk about your new show, though, White House Plumbers, because it's out today. It's about Watergate, which I feel like so many people think that they know what happened. But this is from the perspective <laughs> of those who orchestrated it. We've seen the first episode, but I do. I want to show our audience a, a clip of what to expect. I have to say, fellas, I'm impressed. You should have seen this guy operate. <laughs> Gets the cleaning lady to let us in. Ergo, oh, 100% legal. And they can't ID us. Oh, yeah, good luck with that. And the best part, when she leaves at night. Oh, yeah, no. She doesn't even lock the back door. Slip in, get into the filing cabinet, slip out. In Without hell. anybody knowing. Textbook black op. I'm going to run your black bag op by Ehrlichman, but 
I think he is going to like it. Great work. Plumbers? They fix leaks. Oh, I think everybody prefers Odessa. No, no. Plumbers is better. Very clever. <laughs> okay, Dave, the show is funny, but but it's you don't see it as a comedy because this is real and it actually happened and there are, are implications for today's politics even. Yeah, um, I kind of called it all through production a really funny tragedy <sighs> because it's absolutely horrible. These were, these were people uh, under assignment from the President of the United States working to subvert the will of the American people, to break laws, um, and yet... Sometimes the way they went about it, the, the, the very guys they were, their, their sheer desperation to get it accomplished was funny. You can't help but laughing, even though they aren't jokes. We're not writing jokes. It's just actually happening the way it happened, and it's unbelievable. So, like I said, a very funny tragedy. Sort of goes to that you can't make this stuff up. Uh, Frank Rich, yeah. who is also an executive producer, called it a slapstick tra tragedy, and we had Judy Greer on who told us the timing is sort of perfect right now. Do you agree? Yeah. Um, you know, it's one of these very funny things when, when we set out to make this show, it seemed relevant. It seemed important. Obviously, we'd been through a couple of almost impeachments and stuff. Mm -hmm. And now here we are just a couple of weeks after a former president of the United States is indicted in a courtroom in New York City. You sort of, you can't plan these things, but the issues of Watergate are the same issues we're facing today. You have a president sort of overreaching um, in the name of power. You have guys like sort of the Michael Cohns of the world who are such true believers that they're willing to put themselves out there for a president, for a you know, closeness to power. And yet at the end of the day, these are the first guys that get tossed to the side and go to jail. So I think uh, this will give us, I think White House Plumbers will give us a, a lens to kind of see what's going on today. Sort of, a, there's a real connection between Watergate and right now. So that's my hope. You had a premiere of this show in Washington. Bob Woodward was there. I know the two of you spoke after. What did he say to you about it? Um, it, it, I mean, first of all, let me just say it was so scary because basically you're having Mr. Watergate watch your Watergate show, which I do, I do not recommend. Um, but uh, so I was very nervous. But afterwards, um, he was fantastic. Um, I, I certainly never want to put words in his mouth or dare I say ever misquote him. But he said that we captured the sort of clown show aspect of these guys mm. and how dangerous they were and yet how often like weird and funny they were at the same time. And that, that made me very happy, needless to say. Yeah. All right. It's a fantastic show. Dave Mandel, thanks so much. Yeah. Congrats, Dave. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, everyone meets what, what else great. It's, it's really great. good. It's really funny. Um, also, this morning, the city of El Paso under a state of emergency as the mayor there says he has made a declaration in anticipation of the unknown consequences of Title 42. It's expiring next week. That's that border policy that's been in the center of debate in Washington. We'll ask what he's expecting. The mayor of El Paso, Texas, has now declared a state of emergency, bracing for what is about to come at the crisis at the border. 
we're getting prepared now for what we call the unknown. And the unknown is what will happen after May 11th. May 11th, of course, is when Title 42 is going to expire. That's that immigration authority uh, because uh, it was in place because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Border authorities now predicting a surge of migrants after that. The pandemic restriction allowed the U.S. to quickly expel certain migrants into Mexico or back to their home countries. Joining us now is El Paso Mayor Oscar Leeser. Mayor, thank you so much for being here this morning. You see this up close and personal in a way that very few others do. What are your concerns about what May 12th is going to look like? Well, there, we, I got the opportunity to spend about four hours on uh, Friday in New Mexico and, and kind of look and see what is uh, happening over there. And we, we went out there and we looked. Now their shelters are fairly empty, but the streets have a lot of uh, asylum seekers on the streets. We figured there's about 10 to 12,000 getting ready to come in on, on May 12th. Our, our biggest concern is after talking to some of the asylum seekers that have come in that uh, they're under the impression that uh, after May 12th, they will have uh, asylum into our country. And we're, we're trying to explain to them that that's not true. Our border's not open today. Our borders will not be open on May 12th. So, uh, but they're coming across that we have quite a few already out in El Paso in the streets and trying to talk to them. And when we talk to them, they tell us that uh, they're waiting for May 12th so they continue on to their next destination because they're not coming to El Paso. They're actually coming to the United States. Remarkable that you crossed the border, you went and you spoke with them yourself. What did they say to you when you told them that is not what happened on May 12th? It doesn't mean that the border is open. Well, that's not what they've been told, and that's really a big problem for for the United States, because as they're coming through the countries to come in the United States, they're told that uh, after May 12th, they'll have political asylum and they'll be able to come in. So that's created a big challenge for us. And uh, and that's what we're working on. We're working with the federal government. We've had some conversations where we're trying to relay the message back into Mexico as they're trying to come across. Do you think the federal government is doing a good enough job getting that message across? Well, we just started doing that. You know, they, they have the registration areas where they're doing all over the country and we'll continue to work with them to make sure that message is coming across. But, you know, as we see thousands of people already in the streets of El Paso, our job to make sure that we keep them off the streets and, and make sure that we protect our asylum seekers, but also the community as we're moving forward. So uh, we're, we're opening up the state of emergency, which I declared effective at midnight this morning, was to make sure that we open up uh, temporary sheltering for all the asylum seekers to make sure we have no one on the streets. We don't want children to be uh, exploited and, and we don't want uh, to give, go in the wrong hands and, and create a bigger problem, not only for El Paso, for, but for the country as a whole. And I believe that state of emergency is set to go into effect for about seven days. You think you're going to have to extend it in the end? No, no, we will extend it. Uh, we, next week we have, we'll bring it in front of council to have it ratified and uh, to do it another 30 days uh, and we'll continue to do that as uh, we know that uh, as i said that uh, i really believe that our immigration process is broken until it's fixed this is uh, infinity for us is the way i look at it and we really have to make sure we're prepared uh, when i talked to the federal government the other day i did tell them that i'm ready for may 12th i'm not quite sure what may 13th will bring do you think you're getting well are you getting the help that you believe that you need the coordination that you need from the federal government at this time 
At this point, we really are. I'm very thankful to Secretary Mayorkas. He's been very, very helpful. FEMA has been very helpful to our community. We actually have a lot of funding so we can provide a service to make sure that, again, our asylum seekers are protected and that uh, we get them off the streets. Yeah, and you hear from DHS officials. They say this is one of the number one things on Secretary Marcus's to-do list. Mayor Oscar Leeser, I know you've got quite a time ahead of you. Thank you for giving us some of your time this morning. Thank you for the opportunity. Have a wonderful week. Well, soon House Speaker Kevin McCarthy will address Israel's parliament, the Knesset, during his first trip abroad to Israel as Speaker. We're there live in Jerusalem right after this. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is about to address Israel's parliament. He's the first speaker to do that since Newt Gingrich in 1998. Just hours ago, the speaker had a private meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. McCarthy has vowed to invite Netanyahu to Washington if President Biden doesn't. Netanyahu spoke with our Fareed Zakaria about U.S.-Israeli relations on Sunday. Listen to this. I don't know of many countries that have, within a few days, the leaders, the Democratic and Republican leaders of both sides of the aisle, uh, coming to uh, coming to Jerusalem. So I'm I'm uh, confident about the strength of our alliance. Yes, President Biden did say that he had hoped we'd have a consensus, uh, seeking a consensus here on judicial reform. Uh, it's an internal matter, but I happen to agree with him, and that's what we're trying to do right now. CNN's Jerusalem correspondent Hadas Gold joins us at the Knesset, that is Israel's parliament. Obviously really significant that he's here. First time we've seen something like this since Gingrich. Is there an indication on what he's going to say, what the focus is going to be? Well, McCarthy actually just walked through this honor guard behind me to the parliamentary floor. And any second now, we're actually expecting the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, to also walk through this honor guard to the parliamentary floor, where Kevin McCarthy, as you noted, will become the second speaker in Israeli history to address the Israeli parliament. And we've already gotten a bit of a preview of what that speech will be like in some of the comments he's made so far, essentially saying this is his first trip abroad as speaker, and there's a reason for that. He wants to make it clear that the United States has no greater ally than Israel. It's a much different sort of tone of voice than what we've heard from the Biden administration. Of course, uh, President Joe Biden, and I do believe uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu just walked by behind me uh, towards the parliamentary floor. But Kevin McCarthy essentially taking a different tone. Of course, if you remember President Biden saying that, that Benjamin Netanyahu will not be getting an invite to Washington anytime soon. This, of course, related to the controversy over the massive judicial overhaul that Benjamin Netanyahu's government has been trying to push through that is on a pause right now. But Kevin McCarthy essentially saying that he wants to show that the U.S. has no greater ally and even complimenting Netanyahu directly, saying that in the United States they admire his courage and his leadership. Of course, he's really establishing himself as different than Joe Biden, saying that if Joe Biden does not invite Benjamin Netanyahu to the White House soon, he will do so, that he will invite Benjamin Netanyahu to address the U.S. Congress. One of the things that McCarthy has not been mentioning, though, is the many controversies swirling around Benjamin. Netanyahu from the judicial overhaul to, of course, the extremist ministers who are sitting in his government. I don't think we'll be hearing that from McCarthy. He'll likely instead highlight the enduring alliance, as he's been saying, between Israel and the United States and the alliance he says that will continue. Guys, a really significant day for Israel, for the United States. Everyone's watching. Hadass, thanks for being there. Also this morning, as we wait for more updates out of Israel, we're tracking this. The so-called grandfather of artificial intelligence has just left his job. The New York Times is reporting that Jeffrey Hinton left Google, where he worked for more than a decade, 
Of course, he is a pioneer in artificial intelligence. Everyone in the business knows him. In 2012, he and two of his graduate students actually created the technology that became the foundation for the current AI, artificial intelligence systems like ChatGPT. Hinton says he left Google so he can speak freely about the risk of AI. He said, quote, the idea that this stuff could actually get smarter than people, a few people believe that. I thought it was 30 to 50 years or even longer away. Obviously, I no longer think that. Hinton says that he's concerned that the internet would be flooded with fake pictures, videos, text, and the average person won't know what's real and what's not. He's also worried that AI technologies will, in time, up in the market, take over human jobs. He said, quote, I don't think that they should scale this up more until they've understood whether or not they can control it. Certainly an alarming statement from him. We're going to talk to one of the people who signed the letters about how concerned they are about mm -hmm. AI tomorrow on the show. And that's an interview you want with him as well. Yeah, well, and it's something you're hearing from Elon Musk. It's something you're hearing from so many of these tech Stephen giants. Hawking has warned about it. Bill Gates. Yeah. Where does this go? It's big questions. It's a big question. Okay, much more on that tomorrow. We're glad you're with us. We'll see you tomorrow. CNN News Central is now. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.